0: welcome to out of the question a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view your host is andrea schwartz a teacher and mentor and founder of the chalcedon teacher training institute
1: welcome to another edition of the out of the question podcast and today i have a returning guest he was with us at the beginning of the year And we posed the question, why is it so difficult for people to get along with each other? And I got a lot of positive comments about that. And as is typical with my guest, he never stops learning and he never stops teaching. And so as I have questions, I often contact him. And invariably, he gives me something to read. So it's always a little bit of homework that I get. Tim Yarbrough is with us today. If you're not familiar with him. He is a man of God who serves in a multitude of capacities. He's an elder of his church. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a grandfather. He's an entrepreneur. He's a counselor to those who want to learn and obey God better. And we here at Calcedon think very highly of him. As it turns out, he was a student of Dr. Rushduni's writings and continues to be so. So Tim, thank you for joining me again today.
0: It's a delight to be with you and thanks for having me back.
1: Okay. So we're going to expand on what we talked about before. We talked about why it's so hard for people to get along with each other, but we're going to expand it a little bit, as I said, based on some material that you shared with me. But what do you do? How do you get along with difficult people in your life, and does God have a purpose for this? What do you think?
0: Well, it, it's a great question. We have a principle that we operate from that uh, we believe is drawn from the Word of God, and it is based upon the sovereignty of God. And, and that is, is that there is no people, there are no pressures, and there are no problems that come to our lives that have not been filtered and directed by the sovereign hand of God. And if we believe that, uh, then we look behind the particulars that are right in front of us and we see the hand of God. That doesn't mean that we're blind to maybe we're there's an injustice being done to us. We're not blind to the fact that uh, perhaps these people are wronging us or they're mean or they're doing evil things, but it does mean that we believe that the heart of this person, just like the king, is in the hands of the Lord and the Lord directs it whithersoever he wills. And if we if we take that position, what happens is, is, is as opposed, for instance, to me saying that Andrea is doing something to me, whatever it may be. My position would be that God is using Andrea to accomplish some purpose in my life. Well, there's a far different cry in how I respond to things when I think it's being done by other humans and when I think and believe that it's being directed by the hand of God. If I believe that it's being directed by the hand of God, then I have to covenantally make the, the leap into the fact that all things are done for the good of God's people. And so I anticipate that the Lord is going to direct me into growth and maturity through that view. So that's how we, uh, we approach that is how to embrace difficult people in such a way that we can give thanks to God as to how he's going to train us through those people or through the pressures or through the problems. So that's the philosophical and theological basis.
1: But you're not saying that there aren't difficult people or there aren't people that you're going to encounter. So I can hear somebody reacting to what you said and say, oh, I see. So then you do nothing. If this is coming to you from God, you should just accept it and move on?
0: Oh, well, I would say, yes, you should accept it. Now, as to what you do about it, that depends upon the ethical understanding of the covenant. Let me give you a great example of what I consider to be the most, in my view, the most noble woman in scripture, second only to Mary. Her name is Abigail, and she was married to this character named Nabal. I'm not exactly sure how she got into this marriage, but I I assume, and I've read a little bit on it, that this was an arranged marriage because I think a woman of her wisdom and her nobility would not have picked him out on her own. So the guy was wealthy, but when you read the scriptures in 1 Samuel and you see this household and how it functions, there is this character about this woman that is just so noble and so wise. First of all, you know David uh, sends some guys down to see Nabal because they've been protecting their sheep and uh, and and so forth. And and David was looking to get some provisions for his men. And so David's servants comes to Nabal and and presents their case and said. To them, uh, you can check with your own servants and find out that we've taken nothing, we've helped protected, nothing's been disturbed. And so they they offered Nabal this opportunity to get collaborating evidence of their goodwill toward him. And, and Nabal, of course, said, Well, who are you? And you're just in rebellion, and he wanted nothing to do with them, and he ran ran David's servants off. So David's servants go back, and David gets angry. And, and so the next thing that happens, and, and this, this tells you about developing relationships. This is, this is an incredible testimony. There were servants in Nabal's household who then go to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and explain to her what happened. Now consider this. They didn't go to him they went to her and they explained to her what happened. And they also gave testimony to Nabal's wife that her husband was an evil man. So here were servants who had a platform that they felt comfortable about giving honest testimony about Nabal himself. Somebody had to create that platform where that comfort level was there. Additionally, why would these servants go to Abigail? It's because that when you read Abigail's testimony of her own husband, this woman was not blind to the fact that she was married to an evil man. And so she did not ask his permission. She didn't seek his advice or counsel. She took action. Now, you can tell that this woman had developed a tremendous relationship with the assets of her household and the management of them because she directed these servants to undertake this activity with a large scale of commodities, and she sent them on to David. And so she follows up behind him. The servants obeyed her. They never went to Nabal with that because they understood him, and they understood his evil character, and they understood her this woman had done a tremendous job of building a covenant understanding of her household, even with an evil husband. And she had created a platform where people felt safe in speaking truth. And so this woman takes off and the servants are in front of her and she comes to David and bows down to David. And she says to David, Let this offense be put on me, but don't go and bloody your hands, etc., etc. And so here she was. She assumed upon herself the responsibility of her household. What an incredible testimony this was how to make peace because David was angry. And David's testimony back to her was You have prevented me from being bloodthirsty. And letting my anger get the best of me, I mean, that's basically how we would say it here, by your noble conduct. And so here this woman was, she saved her household by her wisdom, her humility, and her nobility. And David took the provisions that she brought and turned away because he had intended to kill every male that was associated with Nabal and his his farm. And so you think about all the relationships that this woman had cultivated, which led her to cultivate this relationship with David. And so she didn't do nothing. And we use this particular example often with women who are in abusive relationships with men in their household, uh, the the husband, the father, that there is a duty not to keep it covered up if if he is doing evil and wicked stuff. You know, what happens then after that is, I mean, just listen, watch the nobility of this woman. She goes back after this episode with David and Nabal, he is getting drunk. And the scripture says that she remained silent while he was drunk and waited till the next morning. Again, wisdom. This is a woman who understood what would have happened if she had told Nabal what happened and him drunk. The, The likelihood is it would not have turned out well at least that's been my experience with drunk folks. They have a tendency to get very belligerent and angry and all that. So she waited the next morning and the scripture says when the wine was no longer upon him. And then she told him what happened and how close he'd come to being totally destroyed. And she hid nothing from him. And so, you know, his heart turned to stone, the scripture says, and 10 days later, I think it was, he died. But this woman's wisdom and her nobility and her character made such an impression on David that when he heard that her husband had died, he sent to see if she would be willing to become his wife, and of course she did. So she didn't do nothing. She conducted herself honorably and with wisdom, but she took action.
1: So I'm hearing you say that this ability to resolve this situation didn't happen overnight. It was a longstanding attitude, mindset, even worldview, you might say, that allowed her to avert what could have been a disaster.
0: And the thing is, you don't find her sugarcoating the relationship with her husband. She says plainly in the scriptures that he is an evil man, and yet she preserved the integrity of her home. And I I mean, I've seen... A number of women who have done that over the years, maybe not with the same degree of wisdom and forbearance that, that Abigail showed here, but I, I would say it's awfully close
1: to it. So if I'm not mistaken, Nabal can be translated as fool. And at least the book that you suggested, I read, The First Shall Be Last. If I'm not mistaken, made that observation. We have Mistaken the idea of a fool to be just somebody a little silly or eccentric. What is the biblical definition of a fool?
0: Well, I, I think there are actually three, in my view. We, we've gone through the scriptures, and, and what we have sought to do with that is to define what does God say are the characteristics of a wise person, and what does God say are the characteristics of a fool. And what are those definitions? What do they fall into? Well, basically at this point, what we've been able to determine in our studies is that there are 17 qualities of a fool, uh, if one wants to call them qualities. Their dispositions are character traits. And one of them is, in fact, someone who hates knowledge. They don't seek to gain knowledge. You will find them. They're very impulsive and they're not interested in learning how to discipline themselves. So you have that kind of a fool. Then you have the kind of a fool who rejects God altogether, rejects God's ethics. This is a rebellious fool, not just an intellectual. You know, he he may have a very strong intellect. And and so he intentionally rebels against God and God's standards and he does so with a greater knowledge, uh, a very intentional knowledge of of those things. And uh, then the third one is the fool is one who displays all the characteristics of surrounding his life with people who influence in a positive way his negative choices. You will see some of these characteristics cross over sometimes in their life, but generally uh, you will find one of those traits dominant among a person who is
1: foolish. So you you brought up the third one, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit because in this book, it's basically saying we hear the term narcissist and narcissism a lot. And I remember when I first started hearing it parlayed around a lot, I thought that's not a biblical term. What's the biblical term that we can use to look into it? And that's why this book was helpful because The book said, okay, anytime you hear narcissism, which, you know, is what we would call a secular term, you're talking about a wicked, foolish, evil man or woman who basically is looking to create a domain or dominion where he puts people around him that he can dominate. And that sounds a lot like that third person you described. Would you go into that a little bit?
0: Yes. In fact... This is a characteristic that, sadly, you will find that dominates the religious scene in the Scriptures. If you look at, uh, for instance, Third John is a, a is a great practical example. There's this guy named Diotrephes, and he loves to have the preeminence among them. And how this preeminence is displayed is, for instance, if you wanted to welcome other Christians into your circle and, and and fellowship with them, he would forbid you to do so because he doesn't want anyone to challenge what he perceives to be his position of authority. And if you do decide to go ahead and do that, invite these people in, then he will seek to cast you out of the circles that he influences because you're obviously in, you know involving yourself with heretics or Uh, people who don't respect the right authority or that kind of thing. And what he means by that is that they don't leave him in charge. So that's one uh, type. And another one you see, which again was dominant, was and you see it in the life of Christ, he had to deal with these guys, is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, and they wanted control. And when you go through the scriptures and you begin to write out these stories, okay, so what was happening with these guys what was their attitude why were they concerned about Jesus and his teaching you you find that they were concerned about number 1 that he drew people away from them number 2 uh, he's you know the romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place and our power and he was constantly undermining them in terms of their exalted view of themselves and so you and you see this a lot in the christian communities it happens a lot in the leadership positions rather than seeing themselves as examples to the flock and focusing on responsibilities, particularly with what we do as a, as a work of ministry here. We see it a lot. They always focus on their authority and not their responsibilities to lead by example and to, to show people how to live the Christian life. And you go back into the nation of Israel, And, I mean, you find the same thing with the priests, the Levites. Uh, There was this constant problem with power positions. And the disciples were not immune to this. If you remember, James and John's mom goes to Christ and and says, I got something I want to ask you to do for me. And what was it she wanted? She wanted her sons uh, promoted, one to sit on his right hand, one on his left. So you know this this is it's always with us. And when you get people who have those traits and they feed them, I mean, I I think it's a part of man's natural religion. You know that he wants to be as God. And in particularly in family settings where you can kind of close off the arena or the reach, it's easy to create this little domain and keep it under wraps or under secrets. If you don't have covenant faithfulness. And your wife are you know your children so these are things that I mean they just stand out a lot of times because the the people who are practicing it sometimes you can see it it's very dominant like I've, I've known pastors in some reformed churches I mean it's just blatant from the pulpit I would never attend there over a period of time because of how this person views their position as a pastor. And and they view it that way from the pulpit. They're very domineering. They're very uh, authoritarian. And if you go there and you cross them, you know, like when I I go into congregations and I see that, I just make it a habit. I go around and start talking to people and I find out, so what happens when people disagree with this pastor or the elders disagree with them? And the stories are always the same. He becomes angry and he begins to pressure them. And he begins to try to guilt them that they undermine the authority of God's man and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I, I mean, I don't get it. Why are you still here? Why are you doing this? But I can only imagine uh, imagine that you're married to a guy like that. He's in a pastoral role or an elder's role. And that's what home life is like.
1: Yeah. So in the book, which I found at times very eye-opening, and at times I had questions, and then I discovered in later chapters, he actually answered those questions. It's very easy to say, okay, a person's acting this way, and he's always doing it with bad intent. Is it possible that people act in this way because they've been taught to act this way, or they actually think they're being obedient?
0: Well, that's a that's a really good question. I think You can have some of both and you have to really be intimately involved to be able to make a judgment call about what's going on. I think it's possible because I believe that everybody, myself included, has a little bit of the narcissist in them, a a little bit. You know, the dominion mandate is either going to be done in a godly way or it's going to be done in an ungodly way, but it's going to be done.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so... The, the question becomes one of whether or not these particular traits are actual lifestyle traits or are they interruptions of a different pathway. If they are a lifestyle trait, then you've got a person who has a very serious problem with their relationship with God. And the fruit of that shows up in their relationships with other human beings. And if you have a person where this is you know it's out of character for them to do these things then you've got a person that you can you can work with and you and them can take a journey together to say look we've got to conquer this so it is possible for people to to have some expressions of these traits but i will tell you that people who my at least my experience so far in life is that people that have these domineering traits that colored their life and begin to break and shadow their, or shadow their world and begin to break it apart. These people who have these traits as lifestyle characteristics, for the greater part, and when I say greater part, I mean, we're talking 75% and above, they are unwilling to
1: change. Okay. So let me just take this a little further. A lot of people come to faith, come to the Reformed faith, Come to the reconstructionist perspective after having lived a wild and woolly life. And so they don't want that for their children. They don't want that for themselves anymore. And I look at it as the pendulum then swings very, very dramatically the other way. And time goes on. Some decisions don't work out so well. And, you know, the pendulum swings back what does a person do or how would you recommend a person who maybe exhibited some of these traits for what he or she may have thought were good reasons and maybe now comes to an understanding this was pride, this was me trying to dominate, even though I had a nice you know, icing on the cake. If the damage has been done, how does the person undo that damage or is that something that's left to God?
0: Oh, I think there are some wonderful ways that you can undo that because uh, I mean, I'm a parent and I'm a grandparent. You know when you you see things like people who who venture down certain paths, and they genuinely do have good intent. They genuinely do, like I've seen people complain about, you know dress codes for the homes or places they wouldn't wouldn't go. And these parents, for the most part that I've met, had very, very good intents for that. And I, in fact, think it was honorable what they did. And I think often where, where we fail at in that regard is that we fail to take a great lesson from the book of James. And I found this to be true across life in my business world, in my social life, in my family life, where James says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you come up against different trials knowing this that the trying of your faith is intended to create patience but the real key there was knowing this and that is is that we take the time to help the other person understand why we're doing what we're doing and this example leads us directly back to our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered the things for you know that, that he suffered, and the scripture tells us, for the glory which was set before him, he understood why he was doing it, and so oftentimes, I think that if we would just help people to understand, including our kids, our spouses, one another, why we're doing what we're doing, it helps them to be able to process and to see that, and it's it's very good in training them to help others because you create unity in purpose. Now, if you have a disagreement about it, then you know, uh, and we did in our home. Then I can say, okay, you disagree with me, and that's okay. However, since you are in my home, I'm held accountable for the standards and the rules that we're going to do. So I want you to learn the discipline of honoring the standards of a superior to you in this relationship. And I had great conversations with my children about that. And we had to grow into that. I mean, it wasn't like it just came out of the sky with us. And then in terms of recovery, one of the things that the Lord led us to do is to sit down and our children are all grown. Our our youngest one turns 40 this year and to sit down with them and say, look, there's nothing dishonoring for you to look back at your childhood. And, and they're all Christians. They're all following the Lord, their spouses, their homes. And we want you to know that we want you to take the word of God, look back at your childhood, look back at your raising and make an honest evaluation by the word of God. These are things my parents did well. These are things I could have improved on. These are things my parents did bad. And we want you to know that our goal, our hope is number one, you can speak freely to us about that and and we can clear up anything we need to clear up. And we've had those conversations. And number two is that you are able to change that as it relates to your children so that our faithfulness intergenerationally to the covenant becomes and abounds more and more. And because you're, you're going to either create a platform with your children where you can grow together in observing history and you can find unity in the covenant of God and not be so prideful that your children actually might think there were things you did wrong. And you're, you're going to be able to create unity in that relationship to say it's okay, because there's gonna be a time for our children when they're gonna to have to have those conversations with their children and what we would prefer looking generationally, covenantally is that they would take the covenant of God, put it over their relationships, and evaluate the whole thing through that and be good with it. And you know, take the position, for instance, of Eli, what the Lord says, it's good to let the Lord do what seems good to him.
1: You know, I, I hear it a lot, and I be honest, I've said it myself. There are times you say, Oh, I wish that never happened. If I could go back and undo it, I would. But what you're saying and what the scripture says, it wasn't accidental that it happened. You're still responsible, but it was part of your sanctification. And rather than regret our mistakes, don't you think they become part of our testimony, our witness to the faithfulness of God?
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I personally, I think sometimes when we resent those things, It's not always an issue, I think, of pride, but I think it can be because, you know, we look back and and we would like to have perhaps a different vision of our process that is skewered toward a greater maturity than was actually the truth. So to look back on them and to say to future generations, yes, this is where I was. This is what I understood. This is how I reacted And this is how God changed me. This is why this was wrong. And to give them the freedom to bring forward themselves anything that they see where they thought it was wrong or perhaps they had a a different understanding of it, it just creates a platform where you don't have these, as it were, hidden secrets that the family needs to keep under the covers.
1: So it seems that... Growing in the Lord is a good thing, and sometimes looking back and you realize that wasn't the right thing to do, or this, what my decision or my actions were inconsistent with scripture. And so everyone, parents, child, grandchildren, people in every sphere of life need to be evaluating themselves according to God's word, and then be willing to say those very difficult words please forgive me.
0: Yes. You know, the the, the wonderful thing about the word of God is God gave us these mechanisms for restoring God's order. For instance, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. He says, Tim Yarborough, if you come to offer prayer and when you're offering that prayer, you remember then that your brother has all against you, get up, go set things right, and, and if you have a brother who has offended you, then you go to them in private. God gave us all these mechanisms because he knew we were going to be in constant need of cleaning the windshields. And so these are tools that if we would just embrace them and put them on like a tool belt and say, God gave me these so that I might have a conscience that remains clean before the Lord with my spouse, with my kids, with my business associates, with people in my communities, my neighbors. I mean, what an incredible way to help build up this godly maturity in a neighborhood just by keeping things clean.
1: Yeah. You know, as I was listening to this book, because it was a book I got so that I could listen while I was exercising or doing chores it was very interesting. I would hear descriptions and I'd say, oh, yeah, I know someone like that. Oh, yeah, I know someone like that. And then I would think, yeah, people in my family, I know someone like that. And towards the end, I was like, I'm like that sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> coming yes. to the understanding that we may have difficult people in our lives, but we may also be a difficult person in someone else's life.
0: Yes, well, one of the things I think that's helpful, and this is an encouragement to, to your listeners, I have been blessed to have long-time friendships. I mean, deep, wonderful, intimate friendships in my Christian walk. And one of the things that we have learned to do, and we, and we teach this, is to be able to develop relationships in such a way that you know that these people love you etc but you go to them on a fairly regular basis we do it at least annually and say i would like for you to evaluate me and evaluate my life in light of what i profess to believe and just you know examine me and of course we do that with the holy spirit all the time and that's where we should be going but people brothers and sisters around you who you know love you and they're not there's no vindictiveness in them they just know that you want to serve the lord and have them evaluate you and go through things like okay so how do you speak to your wife what is your conversation like what is your business relationships like are you keeping up with you know your covenant commitments in terms of paying people that you owe in terms of how you deal with them are you stealing anything from anybody How are things going in terms of your relationships in the community? And just go through those and have a just basically agreement where, well, who are some people in the past year that's had some difficulty with you that we could just call and talk with? And would you be willing to call them and tell them just to have an honest conversation with us? I'll tell you, it's incredibly enriching to have that done in your life and for it to become a consistent process. But it's also helpful because sometimes when you become unwilling to listen and you can masquerade that. And I've had that happen where I've had brothers who have called people that I had difficulties with and they shared their experience. And I I had to call them and say, look, this is what's happening. And these men are examining my life and they're trying to find out am I consistent with what I claim? And you don't have to tell me anything, but I would love for you to be as honest with them as you're willing to be. And they will get that get that side of the story. And I've, I've had some real benefits that have come my way that have been brought to me by these men who have said to me, Tim, you're wrong. And you need to straighten this up. While I was defending myself the whole time and I just, I was blind. It's been a great experience uh, in the Lord to to have brethren like that.
1: So that sounds like a vulnerability that maybe women are more used to than men. I I would say that a lot of men probably aren't as willing, but let's say somebody hears you and says, well, I don't have someone like that in my life. Oftentimes people are surrounded by people who are antinomians. So they're not necessarily going to use God's law as the standard of evaluating it. So, what does a person do?
0: Well, that's a great question. You know, first, I would encourage them in terms of the Holy Spirit, because ultimately, for all of us as Christians, what we want to do is we want to live directly under the government of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God speaking to us and making our conscience alive. And our role with our brothers and sisters is to help promote us to that place. So David prayed, you know, and asked the Lord to keep him back from presumptuous sins and sins of ignorance and sins of pride. But if you don't have people in those circles, then, you know, I would highly encourage reach out to people that you think you can build a trust relationship with. But you, you have to have trust. And, and trust is, is not something that's cultivated overnight. And you may have to make yourself uh, more vulnerable. Uh, hopefully, you can, can walk into a situation where there is a history of confidentiality. There is a history of honorableness and nobility and integrity. And if you can get into a situation like that, then it's very helpful for you to learn to become that person for others.
1: I learned early on that when I had problems, I could always tell I had issues, specifically with my husband, if when he was off at work, I was having dialogues with him where I was writing his lines in my head, and I was getting angrier and angrier, but of course I was writing his lines, he wasn't writing his lines. That didn't mean I didn't have legitimate beefs, but I knew I could call any number of women and talk to them. And I would get agreement. Oh, yeah, men are just like that. That's just how they are. And I disciplined myself to go to someone who wouldn't say that to me, who would be willing to say, no, I, I mean, yeah, I can see how that bothers you, but, and there've been a handful, not very many that in my life I could go to. Now I've discovered as somebody with graying hair and well into my sixth decade of life, I receive those kinds of phone calls. And my rule of thumb so, if somebody's thinking, well, how do I get somebody who's willing to mentor or be in this relationship? I won't help someone who just wants to whine and whine and whine. If I have somebody who says, I want to have restoration, the situation might be really complex, that restoration isn't going to be an overnight sort of thing. But I find out really quickly, those who just want to complain and never do their homework on what they would do are really people who don't want to change. So I think one of the things, if you're someone who people approach, is find out if they're willing to make biblical change in their life.
0: I've shared this before, but we have this definition of trust and we work from it. It, it is a remarkably wonderful definition. We use it all the time and that is trust is future expectations based on past performance. And we got that definition from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, he that is faithful in little will be faithful in much, but he that is unjust in little will be unjust in much. So the question is, in order to make that judgment, did God intend for history to provide you with the evidence to inform your future expectations? Well, the answer is yes, because you can't build those future expectations without evaluating that past performance. So has this person historically been faithful in the little things? If they are, then God says, I can reasonably expect them to be faithful in the future. If they've been unjust in the past, then I should reasonably expect them to be unjust in the future. Now to to do anything different than that, uh, particularly when we have somebody who's been unjust in the past, and all of a sudden we expect them to be just in the future is the practice of magic. (laughs) And and a lot of times we do that, but there's these these scriptures, there's a ton of them, but there's a couple of scriptures that we really like to use because it, it so highlights this principle The word of God says that as a broken tooth or a foot out of joint, so is the sluggard to those that send him in a time of need. And so what God says is, how did you know before you sent this person that they were a sluggard, that they were not reliable, that they weren't dependable? Well, you had history. That's how you knew what they were. And God says, you go ahead and send them. But what you should expect is you should expect pain like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. And so what we do is we go ahead and send them. And then we say something like this. It's pretty foolish when you think about it. I can't believe he did that again. When God's word says, Tim, if you do this, what you should expect is pain. And I'm old enough now to uh, verify that the word of God is true. <laughs> when I practiced magic, uh, it didn't work. And uh, there's another one that says, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the slothful to them descending. Well, how did you know they're slothful? Well, you passed history with them. And God says, you go ahead and do that. But what you should expect that this person's going to produce in your life is irritation, just like vinegar on your teeth or smoke in your eyes, this person's performance is going to be an irritation. So what we do with our our young people in the counseling that we do, we share with them this thought that bad habits are comfortable, and they are, until you experience the consequences of those bad habits. So if you want to change the consequences, you've got to change the habits. If you're not willing to change the habits, then no one can help you. No one can do for you what you must do for yourself.
1: And you must replace a bad habit with a good habit. Otherwise, you have this apparent vacuum and something else can move in that just distracts you from the resolution.
0: Yes. There's this wonderful testimony in scripture. That tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but the project accomplished is delight. And we we all know that this is the way it works. And so when you're you're trying to make changes in life, what we try to do is to help people, and even for ourselves, is to make changes that we are measurable, but they're small. They give us these little victories. And these little victories keep increasing our confidence that the change is working. And so therefore we're, we're encouraged to pursue the next one and pursue the next one. That's also, it's true, you know, when you're, you're building a business, it's true when you're trying to accomplish things in your local community in terms of cultural development. You try to develop things in such a way that you get these little victories. Oftentimes what we're hoping for is that we have these great huge victories and normally, that's just not the way God designs life.
1: Let's conclude here because we're getting to the end of our time. It seems to me that if the problem or the resolution between you and this difficult person who you've identified doesn't seem to have any way out to resolve it and you want to resolve it, that might be an indication that you need to look to yourself and, and rely more on Fixing those things that need fixing and trusting that God is going to use the pain. Because there's, I mean, especially with all the divisions that have happened in the last year and a half with different people believing different things in terms of their health or what should be done, or who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. It took a while for these things to fester. And I don't think we can blame everything on COVID. It just COVID revealed a lot of the underlying problems people had potentially in relationships that we have to trust that God will work it together for the good in our lives and in their lives if they believe and are faithful, and that we have to be patient because if we're not patient, we really, it really indicates we don't trust God.
0: Yes. Well, and, and also, you know, there, there is such a thing as recognizing that a house divided against itself shall not, cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And where unity, the, the creation of unity is not possible, depending on the context and the relationship, then you have to be willing to walk away from those, realizing that ethically you're just never going to agree. There there are people in my community that embrace ethical standards that are just anathema to the word of God. And they go to church, but they, they embrace these the, the sexual revolution, they embrace ethical systems that are just their rebellion against the word of God. I'm never going to agree with those people. You know, I'm willing to have conversations with them and willing to work on what standards that they use, but we can't even agree on what the appropriate standard is by which we're going to judge our evaluations because they they are unwilling to accept the word of God as the absolute standard. And so with that, you just have to walk away. And I I always try to remember that we're not here to make a peace pact with evil. We are at war with it. And to be able to say to that person, your ethical worldview and my ethical worldview are at war. And they, they will never be able to coexist. And so it is my goal in life to overcome your evil with good, and that that will get you all kinds of different responses but
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's a good rule of thumb so tim let's say we have someone listening today who says i think i could learn a lot from this guy tim yarborough how would they connect with you or connect with things you've written um, explanations of how you've proceeded how would they do that
0: well, there is an article at the Calcedon website. It, it gives a little bit of the story of my life and some of the things how God brought me out and trained me, because a lot of the things that the Lord was so gracious to teach me, it grew out of my own mistakes as a young Christian, and particularly as I, I began down the venture of understanding covenant theology and theonomy. And so that, that's helpful to put a context to it. But also, I've just, I've done a few presentations. I think they're out there on the web somewhere, but we, we are actually developing, we're going to do a training that's very much modeled on our mentoring program and our apprenticeship program. And we're just now getting set up to do the, to do videos and put our, you know, how the workbook works and so forth. And we're going to put that up uh, probably, it looks like on Gab. TV and just have people sign up there that want to take it, and they'll have to be progressive. There's no going to be no cost to it, and just see how it goes. I mean, historically, everything we've done has been local in ones or twos, or you know, small groups. We've just found that to be the ideal situation for discipleship, and then the rule of thumb for discipleship is you got to be there. Uh, you, You just have to be available. And you have to spend time. You have to be committed to time. So, in, and if people would want to reach out by email, they can do that. It's very difficult to get a hold of me. If you call me on my phone, if you don't leave a message, I will not call you back. Mostly because I get all these calls for people who would like to, to sell me these auto warranties, but I can't get anybody <laughs> to do that on my nineteen ninety three Nissan pickup truck.
1: <laughs> so, what's the email address?
0: It is. The, the one that I will use here uh, that, that will be helpful is Tim Yarborough 77. That's T-I-M-Y-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H 77 at Gmail.
1: Right. And you have a presence on Facebook um, and apparently on Gab as well. So people can find you there.
0: Yes, I have a, a Facebook page. I'm not very active on it because I I'm I'm just there are certain things I, I find social media to be good for, and then certain things I just find social media to be horrible for. And theological discussions are one of the things I find them to be horrible for. Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And no doubt as the months progress, um, I will tap you again as a guest. I always enjoy talking with you and learning from you. And I know that others will benefit from the wisdom you've acquired over the years.
0: Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. Uh, Calcedon has been, I, I share with people when they ask me who my favorite theologian is. And it's, for me, it's just hands down, uh, Dr. Rush Dooney. And my second favorite one would be Pierre Veret. But Dr. Rush Dooney has been so used of the Lord to challenge me. Uh, I shared a picture the other day with Martin about my cop first copy of the Institutes that I had. And I had pulled it off the shelf so much that I had literally worn out the the side of the uh, binding on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was so thankful that the Lord had people who put me in touch with Dr. Rustin. I never talked to him or anything like that. But boy, what a counselor that that dear brother has been to me.
1: Right, right. Well, listeners, if you have any comments about this podcast or anything else you'd like us to cover in the future, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.